Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. There are several phrases on that video that probably are anxiety-inducing for you. Um, you know, when a doctor calls you and says, hey, I got your results, or things like that. Uh, really, the phrase, we need to talk, is anyone freak out over that one? When, like, I've, been, I've been married 25 years. I'll tell you this. When, when, when your significant other says we need to talk, it's not followed by, because I want to tell you what an amazing person you are. You're incredible, and I just, I just really wanted you to know. If your spouse says that, if, if your boss says that, we need to talk. It's not followed by that kind of stuff, typically, right? So I get why it's anxiety-inducing for, for all of us. Um, and a lot of our anxiety that we feel comes from stuff, right? Uh, there's a down, you know, people are like, the economy's going to go bad, and we're sitting there going like, uh-oh, like, could I lose my job, right? Um, a storm is coming, uh-oh, I better go to Kroger and get, like, eggs and milk and bread so I can make French toast during the storm or whatever. Like, the, a lot of our anxiety is the things that are happening. But I think, uh, or, or, or this one, uh, this is the most important election of our lifetime. I don't know if anyone has said that in 2024, but you can have that one for free on your bingo card because I promise you somebody will say that this year and this will be a thing. So the, that's all stuff, right? Really, most of our anxiety, though, the biggest portion of our anxiety, I think, the things that make us anxious and afraid have to do, it has to do with our relationships, the, the, the people stuff. Um, even when we think about the economy and we think about rain or, or a storm or whatever, we're thinking about the relationships that we're in and, and what that might mean and how that's going to affect those relationships. Um, anxiety comes from relationships. You can do the work that we gave you last week. We started this series last week, talked about being a non-anxious presence. And you can limit your exposure to the things that drive your anxiety up, and you can actively pursue the habits that drive your anxiety down. But eventually, you're going to be in contact with other people, and people can bring a lot of anxiety. Um, People bring pressure, and pressure brings anxiety. And so we have to figure out how to deal with pressure. How do we stand on our own two feet? How do we stand for ourselves and what we believe in the midst of a sea of people who might believe something else or who are just going to bring pressure into our lives? It can be uh, a huge challenge. I understand this because, uh, in part because I work at a church, and when you lead in a church, you, uh, you, you invite some of that kind of pressure. Churches are very people-y, and um, I know that. I signed up for that. That's, that's something I wanted to be a part of. I, I, I like that. But people come with hopes and dreams and expectations, and there are as many in this room as there are people, right? That everyone's got their own things. That, and, and often in leadership in a church, people will come to you, and they will pin their hopes and dreams and expectations on you. And, and they will say, can you do this? And can you make the church this way? And I wish the church would show up for me this way, and all of that. And again, I get it. I signed up for it. I'm not complaining at all. I'm just saying I understand what that pressure's like. And if I am unable to stand on my own feet and and stand up for who I am and what I believe and where I think we should go, I will get crushed by people's expectations. Like, that's just the reality. And your job or your situation might be be very similar. And, And beyond church stuff, I also know what anxiety is like because I have extended family and they have expectations also of me. Anyone? 
Anyone feel that, right? This is, why, this is why holidays can make you nervous because you show up with extended family and there are ways you are supposed to be. They, they want you to conform to a pattern. This is what we eat. This is how we do this. This is where you're expected to pitch in. This is when you're expected to be here. Like there's all that kind of pressure that comes with, with family. And not all of that is bad. We are all born into families. God gives us those for a reason. And part of the function of family is to show us how to be in the world. So it's not all bad. Uh, I, I would say uh, being married, uh, my wife has expectations of how I show up in the world. And mostly that is a good thing for me so that I don't, so that I don't go off, off the rails. But families come with a lot of pressure. And depending on your family, it may come with more or less. You know? I, got a, I got a buddy who's a pastor up in Philadelphia. And he at a church there. And a lot of people in the Philadelphia area are from Catholic backgrounds. Some of you may have grown up Catholic, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. They're from Catholic backgrounds. And um, he said it's very hard in the church sometimes to, to help people who come from a Catholic background because they're, they're attending a church that's maybe not Catholic. And he said, for a lot of the, he said, Chris, I remember him telling me this. He said, Chris, uh, for the lot of people that I know that are part of our church up here, um, the only thing for them that is scarier than going to hell is dealing with the unrelenting pressure from their extended family. And I was like, dang, that sounds hard. <laughs> like, that sounds really difficult. Now, I'm not Catholic, but I get, I get it. And I think we all feel it. Like, there is pressure to, that comes from family when you step out of a particular way of being or a way of showing up in the world. And so how do we, how do, we do that? How do we, how do we stand, stand when there's a lot of pressure around us? And if it's not from your family that's bringing pressure, it could be from a boss, it could be from a coworker, a friend, a mentor, a teacher. Um, what do we do when there's pressure that drives up our anxiety? One solution is you just cut all those people off. You just go, man, I can't handle the haters. I can't handle the people who want me to be something else. I'm just going to cut them out of my life. That is a solution, and that is one that our culture tells us we should take. But instead, I want to argue in this series that there's a better way to uh, drive our anxiety down and function in a non-anxious way, even amidst an anxious system. There is a way to be self-differentiated, that we stand on our own, but also to be emotionally connected to people that that we know and that we love. And so, so for the next two weeks, I want to talk about that self-differentiated and emotionally connected. Both pieces are necessary. We'll talk about the emotionally connected piece next week. For this week, I want to talk about what it takes to be self-differentiated as a way of being non-anxious. So let me give you a definition of that. Being self-differentiated means to stand up for yourself in the midst of surrounding pressure to conform. Let that sit in. To be self-differentiated means you stand up for yourself in the midst of surrounding pressure to conform. If you can do that well, you are well on your way to being non-anxious. Now, we're looking at the life of Jesus in this series and and what the New Testament teaches us about, about anxiety. And one of the things you see if you look at the life of Jesus is how well he does that, how how self-differentiated he is, how he stands on his own, even amidst all of the pressure around him to conform and to show up a certain way. Um, And this starts very early in his life. In fact, we don't know a lot about Jesus' growing up years, like his teens and all that, but we do have this one story of when Jesus was 12, and it shows up in Luke chapter 2. Listen to this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. 
And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Do you hear the anxiety creeping into the system around Jesus? And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Uh, On the surface, this reads to us very strangely. How did Jesus go with his parents to Jerusalem and not end up with them on the way home? But remember, it's not like he was in the backseat of a car back then, and they were like, oh, where's Jesus? Oh, there he is. Like, it's not like that. When you go in large groups, and, you know, you can be traveling, walking, and, like, well, he's with the other group. I mean, come on. You've seen Home Alone. You can lose people, um, and you can leave a kid behind. It, it, it could happen back then, too. It could happen in our culture. And so they, you know, sort of misplaced him for a day, and then they go back to him, and they they look for him in Jerusalem, and he's in the temple, and he's like learning and teaching, and his response to them, because they are bringing the anxiety, they are bringing the family pressure, what are you doing, what are you thinking, kid, and he responds with a little bit of sass, I think, I don't know, as a parent, it's like, man, really, did you just say that to your parents, but he he basically says to them, look, I need to be about my father's business, I'm, 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 I'm here with my heavenly father, that, that sort of thing. And I guess they didn't take it as sass because it says Mary treasured it in her heart as she, as she heard him say this. But they were kind of astonished, like, whoa. Look how, even at an early age, look how differentiated he is, even from his family of origin, where he's like, nope, this is what I need to be about. And it does say he goes home and was submissive to them, so it's not like he shunned his family or anything like that. But it's, it's, it's powerful. He's differentiated at a very early age. And then when he starts teaching, when he starts his public ministry as an adult, listen to how differentiated he sounds, how he stands on his own in the midst of a culture that might say something else. Let me just give you a couple examples from his teaching. All of these are from Matthew. Matthew 5, his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He's sitting there going, you heard it said, but I'm telling you. Again, verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Later on, same chapter. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. Over and over, and we could do this all day. Jesus is saying, People are saying this, but I am telling you, this is the way it is. And he is standing on his own. He is standing in the midst of a culture that's going to tell him, nope, that's not right. Nope, I don't like that. Nope, that's uncomfortable. Why would you say it that way? That's not what I learned from my teacher. You're, you're contradicting some other rabbi I've heard before. Like he stands there and says, you think it's this way, but I am telling you, I'm standing on my own. He is self-differentiated in his teaching. And not just in his teachings, um, in his behavior, 
over and over with Jesus. You see, he goes where he says he's going to go. He's like, I, I'm going to go do this now. And then he goes. And no, you can't stop this. This is what's happening, and I'm going to make this happen. He's differentiated in the way he talks and his behavior. John uh, chapter 6, at one point, Jesus is, is uh, he tells everybody, he tells an entire crowd of people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Super awkward. It, it, that sounds weird to us. It was weird to them too. And his disciples were like, what the heck are you saying? In fact, John chapter 6, verse 60, they said, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Imagine the pressure they brought to Jesus after he said that, that his closest followers were like, Jesus, you got to stop saying that kind of stuff. And he's like, this is, and they're, and they're like, this is really hard. Who can, who can put up with it? It's hard to even understand what he means when he says, drink my blood and eat my flesh. That's hard to understand. But if you do understand it, it's also hard to obey. So this is challenging stuff where Jesus is standing alone amongst the, the teachers of the world and in what he's bringing. He is extremely self-differentiated um, in, his, in his speech, in his behavior. Now, let me give the disclaimer, as, as usual, particularly in this series. You can go, well, of course he's God. Like, of course he can be self-differentiated. It's easy to be, to stand on your own two feet when you're like the ultimate creator of feet. You're like, oh yeah, he just, he does his thing. I mean, he could just say what he wants because if you argue with him, you're wrong. Like, I, I get that. I, I, I get that. Um, and, and none of us are going to be self-differentiated 100% of the time. People have pointed to several fig- figures in history for self-differentiation, particularly like Abraham Lincoln. And they would say, this dude stood on principle on his own at times. But even they would say about self, uh, those who study this kind of thing, they would say, Lincoln was self-differentiated like maybe 70% of the time. So at best, you know, we might get there 50% of the time where we can stand on, on our own. Uh, but I think the, to the degree that we can become more self-differentiated, it helps us to be less anxious. We get glimpses of this, not just in Jesus, but in Paul. Paul wrote these words, kind of the theme of our entire series. We looked at them last week. Let me put them back up on the screen. Philippians chapter 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul teaches us. And I, and I was trying to think, like, how did he model that, though? Like, he, he can say, you shouldn't be anxious and you should pray instead, but how does he function? And we get some glimpses of it. First Corinthians 4, I've read this one to you before, but I want you to hear this. Listen to what he says. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me, it is, it is Paul, right? He's like, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. This is very differentiated language. He's saying, um, I'm not people-pleasing, and it's not you who judge me. In fact, he's so... Um, He's so willing to stand where he stands. He's saying, it's not even you who judges me, and I don't even judge me. And, even, uh, and I feel like my conscience is clean, but the truth is what actually matters to me is whether God judges me and how he views me. So this is Paul standing uh, separate from the pressure of culture around him. This is the language of a very differentiated um, 
person. He, he looks to God, and that is an st- extremely healthy stance, and it's very hard to do 100% of the time. So what does it look like, and how do we get there? Let me give you a couple ideas. Number one, a self-differentiated person is confident in their identity. We live in a culture where we are, I, I would argue, and you, you may disagree, but I we're in a culture where we're very neurotic about the self. We're very, um, our identity, who, who are we, and, and, and to what degree do we choose that, and do we get to say, and do we get to define. Um, it, 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 it really is a, a very peculiar, almost American thing that we do. Um, certainly America's got it maybe all the way out to the extremes where we are very much like, I get to be my own boss and be the captain of my own soul and choose my own destiny. But it, it ends up, uh, we, get, we just end up getting very um, neurotic and anxious, I would argue. Anxious and afraid, partly because we're so hung up on ourselves. Um, we live in a culture that has, and I've talked about this before, I'll say this very briefly, we have torn down family and the value of it. We have torn down religion. We've torn down many of the institutions that bind us together, that give us guardrails for life. We have torn these things down, and then we have said, Go just out there and you do you. And we tell people to be true to yourself. Just go be true to yourself. And um, it's really hard to know what self we're supposed to be true to. Like if we have no good sense of self and you tell people go be true to yourself, that's just anxiety producing, honestly. That's, that's what we're doing. And you see this in, there's a lot of writers I could pull it from that, that kind of do that language in popular psychology today. One I saw was uh, Glennon Doyle Melton. She wrote the book Untamed probably five years ago or something like that. And uh, it was very popular in sort of quasi-spiritual kind of Christian circles, maybe five, seven years ago. I don't remember. Um, she wrote this book Untamed, and she uh, articulates well this, uh, this be true to yourself kind of dynamic, which, by the way, sells books. People love that stuff. Um, and it, people, you just kind of eat it up. And it's crazy. It, I'm going to read you a piece of it here in a second. But if, if you read Psalm 46.10, it says, and you may have heard this before, it says, be still and know that I am God. So God is speaking in the psalm, and he says, be still and know that I am God. That's the idea of Psalm 46.10, that in our quietness, that we will slow things down and we will get this deep sense of knowing that who God truly is. Listen to what Glennon Melton does with it in her book. She says this, be still and know. It didn't say pull your friends and know or read books and know or scour the internet and know. It suggested a different approach to knowing. Just stop. If you just stop doing, you'll start knowing. There in the deep, I could sense something circulating inside me. It was a knowing, capital K. I can know things down at this level that I can't on the chaotic surface. Down here, when I pose a question about my life in words or abstract, abstract images, I sense a nudge. The nudge guides me toward the next precise thing, and then when I silently acknowledge the nudge, it fills me. The knowing feels just like warm liquid gold filling my veins and solidifying just enough to make me feel steady and certain. I can appreciate what she's trying to do there. I think she's trying to maybe help you be self-differentiated, maybe help people to be free from the judgments of others and maybe free from unhealthy people-pleasing behavior. But I would also argue that that line of thought leads to a pretty strong sense of narcissism. That, that 
track she's, she's going on really leads us away from God and into the self. It leads us to, you're your own boss. Only down your deepest soul can you really know. And the psalm doesn't say, be still and just figure it out, or be still and listen, and then you're just going to totally hear it from your perfect intuition inside. It says, no God, no him. Uh, getting confident in your identity uh, doesn't mean you do you. It, it means we allow God to speak into us. I love Kierkegaard. He says this, now with God's help, I shall become myself. I like that because I think it gets it right. There is a sense that we need to be self-differentiated and grow and stand on our own feet. But we do that connected to God. We have to recognize his hand in all this. We will become most ourselves when we actually pursue him and, and learn from him how to flourish as the people he created us to be. So number one, a self-differentiated person is confident in their identity. Number two, a self-differentiated person can articulate where they stand and why. Jesus is constantly telling the crowds, his followers, audiences, people that are around, he's constantly telling them how it is. And there's a pressure that comes with that when you stand like that and you articulate your spit, like this is what is true. When you articulate that stuff, there's pressure. People don't like it. They want it to be something else. And so they're going to come back at you and it can drive anxiety up. And I wondered like, how does Jesus do it? Besides, yes, he's God, but how does he, how does he stand there, say hard things and still like not let the pressure overwhelm him? And he said this interesting thing, John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son, talking about himself, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Now, on first glance, that does not sound very self-differentiated. Jesus is standing up there saying, I can't do anything. I can only do what the father shows me. Um, that sounds not self-differentiated. That sounds probably something more like codependent, maybe. Um, but I want you to notice this. He is articulating the why behind his what. He's going to take hard stands. He's going to stand in some uncomfortable places. And the reason he can do that is he is tied to something that's not just himself. He is listening to and obeying and following his heavenly father. And he's saying, what God, what God the Father has taught me, that's what those are the things that I, I say. Um, what he says flows from his identity as God's child. His identity is not something he made up. His identity is rooted in something that is other than just himself. The idea of just you do you or, you know, I am who I am. I don't care about the haters. Like that, that would sound weird coming from Jesus. He he sees himself as connected to the creation, to what God is doing, God the Father is doing in the world. His identity, and I think this is true for him and this is true for us, the identity is received, not achieved. We are who we are because we are who our creator says we are. And this is so counterculture. We live in a culture that says, you do you, and we, we assume that you have a good grasp on you. And if we're honest... I don't have a good grasp on me, not very often. So you do you is not always helpful. People say, you do you. I'm like, I don't know what I is. I don't have, like, this is difficult to, to, to get it right. No wonder we're so anxious and afraid. How, how are we supposed to be true to ourselves when we don't have a good grasp of the self? 
And I think for followers of Jesus, we are freed up a little bit. Our identity is received. We don't have to achieve it. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to grasp it. We receive it from him. This is what 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Therefore, if anyone, 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are reborn. When you give your life to Christ, you're baptized into him, you are reborn. You are something new. And you have a new identity as God's child. You, you, you receive that. And if you, could, if you could walk through the New Testament, we don't have time now, but if, if I could take you on a journey through the New Testament where you look at all the things it says that you are, all, these, all this identity language, there's, there's a ton of it in there, and it helps you to differentiate, I am not who my friends say I am, I'm not who my parents say I am, I am uh, a child of God, and I, I know my family. Um, I am, as the song that we often sing here, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. Why does the song say it that way? Why does it talk about fear and identity like that back to back? Because this is part of the key. You have to know who you are so you can stand uh, in a a self-differentiated sort of way. Um, So let me give you uh, two ways to to do that and to to self-differentiate, and then they'll be done. Number one, spend time with the Lord and learn your identity. We need to invite God into this process. Um, and, and ask him, Lord, who am I? And show me who I am and teach me how to flourish as your child. Teach me how to function in, in that space. Um, it is very easy for us to define our identity in terms of roles. Like I could say my identity is I'm a pastor or I'm a father or I'm a husband or like different roles that I have in life. I'm a brother and that kind of thing. Um, and that's fine, but the challenge with defining yourself and your identity in terms of those roles is truthfully like and sometimes tragically all of those roles could be taken away from you you can lose those things and so what would it look like to if you if you if you really tie your identity to certain roles and they're taken away who are you then when those things are gone who am i if i'm not a husband who am i if i'm not a pastor if i'm not a father Um, So we have to be very careful there. And so it makes more sense to actually connect our identity not to the roles that we carry, but to something deeper, uh, more eternal, the truth. And I I would argue that um, being a child of God is something that we receive, and it it can't be taken away from us. It can't be ripped away. Uh, That is something we can carry with us and go, this is who I am. And and no one's going to come snatch that away from you. And, And that can be a very powerful thing for, for us. Um, so so uh, to learn and internalize those truths, we need to spend time with the Lord. That's why we talked about last week, read, pray, and meditate. Um, reading the scripture, praying to him, singing worship songs to him, gathering in worship, uh, meditating on the scripture, um, giving, serving, all of the, the, the practices of spiritual formation, getting alone and quiet before God. All of these things help build the relationships. There's really no substitute for that. Relationships take time. Uh, all of them do. The best ones do. The best friends you have are people you've logged the most time with, probably, right? Like you, you've got history there. And it's no different with our relationship with God. We log time over time. We build the relationship over time. Um, and we trust him a little more bit by bit. And, he, and that helps us to actually stand on our own. It helps us to be differentiated and non-anxious. So first, spend the time with the Lord and learn your identity. And as you articulate, this is where I stand, this is who I am, a second key piece here, number two, give others the freedom to disagree. 
So learn your identity, stand for who you are, but give other people the freedom to disagree. I'm surprised to the degree Jesus is very take it or leave it in what he says, because he says hard things. But then he's sort of like, he'll say hard things, and then he's like, do with that what you want, you know? Like, a month ago, we looked at the rich young ruler, and I'm not going to go through the whole story, but this guy comes to Jesus, and he wants Jesus to show up for him in a certain way, and he wants, to give, he wants Jesus to give him these answers. And the guy is, a, by all accounts, a pretty good dude, and the guy walks away sad from Jesus because he didn't like Jesus' answers. And this is one of those situations as this guy walks away. And the scripture, if you remember, we looked at it last month. The scripture said that, this guy, that Jesus loved this guy. Like he looked at him and loved him and gave him an answer. And the guy walks away from Jesus, not happy with Jesus' very self-differentiated, stand-on-his-own sort of answer. The guy walks away. And this is one of these stories when I read it, I go, you know what? I'm actually nicer than Jesus. I don't know about you, Because I read it and I go, I mean, I wouldn't have let that guy get away like that. I would have followed him and been like, I mean, I know I said that hard thing, but like, are you okay? And let me, let me sit down with empathy and let me tell me your story again. And are you, are you good? Let's, let's, let's get coffee later and we can talk about it again. And like, that's what I would do. And I would do it thinking that I'm nice. It's not nice. I would do it because I'm insecure because I can't stand on my own. Because it's hard sometimes to say the hard thing and just let it hang there uncomfortable. And this is what Jesus could do. He could, he could stand on his own and say the hard thing and he would let people disagree. He wasn't out there begging for people to follow him. And the mantra I have tried to get in my head when, I'm, when, I, when I know I'm going to take a stand and say this is where I'm at, the mantra I've tried to get in my head is don't agree and don't argue. So when people come, when you say, this is where I stand, and people come back at you, don't agree, don't argue. Girl, I'm just not, not going to do it with you. Like, this is where I'm going to stand. And, and I've had to repeat that. I, I, was, I was entering into a conversation a couple months ago that I knew was going to be anxious. I knew there was a lot going on around this conversation. And as I went into that conversation, I remember just saying to myself, state, state where you stand, don't agree, don't argue. Don't. Get it, don't get drawn into the fight and give people the freedom. Because if you want the freedom to stand on your own, you have to give people the freedom for them to stand on their own. So, two ideas. Spend time with the Lord and let him give you your identity. And secondly, give others the freedom to disagree when you articulate where you stand. Um, and let me just give you final disclaimers about this. The point of this entire series anxious and afraid, is to help us be a non-anxious presence in the midst of a very anxious age and anxious culture and anxious world. And I don't know what's coming this year, and I don't know what anxiety-inducing things will show up on our social media feed. I'm sure that's where it'll show up first, though, uh, or in, in whatever. Like, I, I don't know what's coming, but I, I just see a, a real need for people to stand um, to stand confidently and be self-differentiated. I see it in my own life. I see it in leaders of the church, in, in politics and in culture and in, in all the things, in schools and all that. Uh, we need more people who can stand on their values and their ethics and their, their core rather than just be blown by the wind and go where all the pressure is trying to push them to go. And so I see uh, a, a lot of need for that, for people to be self-differentiated. Um, we think we are that way, but I think a lot of us 
myself included, we have room to grow in this. I see people online, you've probably seen this, where people will be like, you know, if I had lived in the 1930s in Germany, I would have stood against the Nazis. Okay. I, I always read that. I'm like, would you? Because um, you're a grown adult and you can't even stand against your mother when she tells you to put your coat on. Like, I, like I, you know what I mean? Like, we are not as differentiated as we think we are. We think, you know, I would stand against not. Nazis, sure, a thing you can't prove now to anyone. Like, yeah, you would have done that. Yeah, mm, it's hard. It's hard to stand on your own amidst the surrounding pressure to conform, even in your own family system. So we all have ways we can grow there. I'm, I'm, I'm with you in it too. It is a, it is a challenge. So, so um, step up and, and, and be self-differentiated and, and make a stand. And then last piece is this. Um, Understand that just standing merely, I'm self-differentiated and I stand on my own, just doing that, there's a way to do that where you're just a monster and a narcissist, right? Where you can just be like, and I don't care what you say, this is who I am, and that person ends up angry and alone, right? Like, so I'm not saying do that. You need a second piece to this, which is you, you, you stand, you're self-differentiated, but you're also emotionally connected, that's what we're going to talk about next week, about how to do that piece with it. Let's pray. God, help us to be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. Um, there's lots of pressure that swirls around us to show up a certain way, to say a certain thing, to, um, to stand in this place, not this place, and to conform in work, at school, um, in our families, with friends. There's a lot of pressure, and that can drive our anxiety up. God, help us to constantly and continually go back to you to remember who we are, to, to learn our identity, and God, help us to make principled stands where we need to and say, this is, this is where I'm, I'm at, um, but, but to do that in a, a loving and, and uh, um, in a connected way with others so that uh, we, can, we continue to maintain and, and build relationship. So it's challenging stuff, Lord. Keep uh, working on us through, through all of this. In, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.